Since the 1960s, the U.S. government has embargoed American business with Cuba. But policies towards individual travelers to the island have been loosening up over the years. You used to have to sneak in, but now you can do it legally. Coming up, Christopher P. Baker updates us on how American citizens can plan a trip to Cuba and what seems to give it a bit of romance as a -a one-of-a-kind destination. There is, of course, this time warp element. Transcontinental pilot Mark Van Honecker has an incredible view of the world from the cockpit. He tells us about his favorite cities to revisit, even if his flight schedule only gives him a day or two. Cape Town, it's one of my favorite cities to fly to because it really is uh, nearly at the tip of a continent that you've crossed. You spend a night crossing if you've come from Europe. Plus, we make time for more of your calls to hear what it's been like for everyone to resume their travel plans this year. Glad you could join us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Flying a transcontinental jet will change how you view the world, literally. In a minute, Mark Van Honecker is back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to share how he reimagines his favorite cities. Christopher P. Baker is one of the world's leading experts on travel to Cuba. He updates what Americans need to know about visiting Cuba this year. And later in the hour ahead, we'll catch up on more of your calls to tell us how it's been going as you join the crowds of people picking up where we all left off when pandemic closures derailed our travel plans. As a transcontinental pilot, Mark Van Honecker flies to cities all over the world over and over again for just a day or two at a time. But the cumulative effect is a unique and vivid intimacy with many of the world's most interesting cities. And he writes about that in his most recent book. It's called Imagine a City, a Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World. It's a love letter to the cities he's returned to again and again. And he joins us now to give us a pilot's perspective on some of his favorite cities. I'm happy to be here, Rick. Thank you. Yeah, so, boy, you've spent decades flying from great cities to great cities, and a lot of people kind of wonder, how is a pilot actually a traveler? Because you got downtime, you're in a city for a day or two, and then you fly again. How does that change your travel experience? Do you enjoy being in a city, or do you just hang out in the hotel and wait till you got to fly out? Well, that's a great question. When I first started flying to cities as a pilot, I would uh, rush around and try to do everything that I could that was in a guidebook or or later on a website. I wanted to hit those big items, those big places, because I thought, you know, how could I not? And yet, as pilots, we fly to cities again and again and again, as you say, but never for very long. And as that's, uh, I've come to appreciate that, it's allowed me to become a much more relaxed traveler. And Hmm. um, if I can borrow one of your phrases, to try to be something of a temporary local A good example is when I first went to Beijing for work, uh, some of my colleagues were going up to the Great Wall on our day off. And, you know, how could you not go to the Great Wall? (laughs) It was my first day in China, my first day in Beijing. And yet, by the date of that trip, I already knew that I was coming back the next month. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go to the Great Wall next time. This time, it's my first time here. I'm just going to walk around. I didn't do anything that was in a guidebook. Um, And yet, it was my most memorable experience of Beijing. And you had that maturity or that that comfort of knowing this is not your one trip in a lifetime in that great city. You're going to be coming back. And I think that's important for people, whether they're pilots or not, is don't sightsee frantically like you'll never be back there again. You're always going to have an excuse to go back. It's a blessing. So look at Paris and Rome and Beijing as a, a lifetime of opportunities for visits. That's right. And even if it's a city that 
that you think you may not go back to again. You know, mixing in some of those elements of relaxation with those those big things you don't want to miss, obviously, um, I think is a really good way to get a feel for the city um, and to experience it a little bit more like a uh, like a local. You know, I'm often up at um, because I'm jet lagged or I'm on a different time zone. You know, I'm often up very early in the city, and, I, and I'll go out and I'll end up quite unintentionally in its rush hour. You know, I'll be I'll get on a train, and I'll think, oh my god, this is this is rush hour in Hong Kong, um, nah. and and I'll grab a coffee and get on a ferry and just watch the office workers coming out of a subway station or, or streaming into a tower. And, uh, you know, I haven't really done anything that would be on a, on a list of things to do in a city. And yet I've, um, you, you get a little bit of a feel for it. You know, I've got that these days, so many people have a bucket list and frankly, I don't like the idea of a bucket list of things you got to check off to see. And when I have a real great experience, I, I kind of consider it, uh, a non-bucket list experience, you know, like you said, just being there and noticing rush hour and in a bank of 20 turnstiles all moving at the same time. You know, that's, that's an experience. I was, uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking jet lag. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a tour guide. I've got a, all my guides and I, we fly over and we have to work that next day. I feel sorry for, for diplomats and, uh, you know, states people who fly around the world and have to negotiate at a, at a, and diplomacy <laughs> table, you know, and try to be sharp. And of course, pilots have to be sharp. What's your trick for jet lag? How big of a deal is that for you after decades of flying? Well, we are in a, a somewhat unique perspective as air crews because when we arrive in a city, we don't really have to do anything until it's time to go back. Whereas if you're a business person or a diplomat, um, you might be going straight to work. Um, whereas for us, you know, everyone is everyone has their own kind of approach. So my my personal approach is, if I can be in the hotel room, if I can be in bed by about 10.30 in the morning, so let's call it a 10 o'clock rule. If I'm taking my shoes off before 10 o'clock and taking my tie off and my hat in the hotel room, before 10, I'll go for a snooze. If not, I'll just head straight out. And one of my very favorite things to do in a city is just to walk. It's a, obviously a great way to get exercise, but it's, it's just an amazing way to experience. And I've, I've always said uh, jet lag hates fresh air, bright lights, and exercise if you're it outside does, yeah. walking. I couldn't agree more. Um, and, yeah. and, and of course, uh, you're not going to fall asleep on the couch if you're standing up walking. <laughs> yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Van Honecker. He's a pilot and author of books like Skyfaring, Imagine a City, and How to Land a Plane. You can read more about Mark's work at his website, markvanhoneker.com. That's spelled V-A-N-H-O-E-N-A-C-K-E-R, markvanhoneker.com. Mark, it's interesting to think of things you might notice uh, as a pilot that a lot of us don't. Yeah, uh, for sure. What do, you, what do you notice? What can you think of? Um, you, you come into Phoenix and all you see is little square blue patches and you realize every other person owns a swimming pool. You know, what are some observations? You know, often, you know, there are, you know European cities, uh, many of them have green belts. So when you fly into London, it's, you know, it's one of the largest cities in uh, in the Western world. And yet it's really striking how green it is until pretty much it just all goes city all at once. Um, and that's no accident. Um, there are very strict rules on where you can build things. And, you know, that was a decision made uh, not just for London, but for other cities in the UK. And of course, before that, when you're, you're just over that famously green English countryside, uh, you see these little hedgerows. And you're looking at land boundaries, which are ancient, whereas in contrast, when you fly over the American Midwest uh, and you see those very strict uh, grids for agricultural squares, you know, even uh, the colors of lighting are very different. 
you know, England has a lot of those quite yellowish sodium lamps. Right, right. Um, so the cities look different. Belgium, uh, which is where my father was born, uh, is very, very brightly lit. And they, you know, astronauts often comment on how bright Belgium is from above. When you, even when you fly over it as a pilot on a clear night, which hmm. is a rarity in Northwest yeah. Europe when it's that right. clear, <laughs> you can see, because they light every road, or they used to light every right. road, you can really see uh, where Belgium ends and Germany begins. Interesting thing you can also see is America's commitment to freeways. I mean, flying into Los Angeles, it's just a tangle of highways. And you commented in your book how it seems like uh, an ad for a computer chip. It looks like one big integrated circuit in kind of a bizarre way. Yeah, you know, Los Angeles, um, I think Los Angeles might be one of one of the most extraordinary places to fly into at night, especially if you're seated on the right side. And, mm. you know, cities um, often, I think one of the reasons I love how they look from above is that they seem both futuristic and quite ancient um, and, and almost biological. Like, you, you know, even L.A., for all of that computer chip quality it has at night, um, is bounded by mountains and by the ocean. And and you see how even a city that has so little um, regard, in a way, for the desert that it grew in um, yeah. is, is constrained by the mountains and the ocean. I like that. Biological and futuristic. Mark Van Honecker flies a Boeing 787 Dreamliner from London to cities around the world. You'll see his byline on occasional columns for the Financial Times and the New York Times. His latest book is Imagine a City, a pilot's journey across the urban world. You know, there's certain sights you get that you just can never forget. Any traveler seems like knows and loves Venice. To have the opportunity to fly into the Venice airport, you get to see the lagoon and you get to see that that thousand-year-old city that looks just like a fish. It's shaped like a fish, like you, you think about when you look at a paper map. But there it is, in in reality, flying over it, and you see the whole lagoon. What are some of your treasured views from the cockpit coming into cities? That's a, that's a really tough one. Uh, you know, I would say that most of them are at night. Uh, in general terms, I, I prefer flying in at night. I, I really love how cities look. You know, going back to Los Angeles, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, went there at some point in the 40s. And I have the quote in, uh, in Imagine City in the new book, but I, I can't remember exactly what it is. But she's talking about flying into L.A. and how it looks like a handful of jewels on the darkness. Uh, and that was you know, the forties and imagine, imagine what she would say of it now. Mm. Mm. Um, I love flying into London, um, especially um, at night, but also on a clear morning where you can see the river and tower bridge and St. Paul's. And, mm. uh, and you can just imagine that the city is waking up just as you're landing. If you've come off a long transatlantic sector, uh, Cape town, um, it's one of my favorite cities to fly to because mm -hmm. it really is uh, nearly at the tip of a continent that you've crossed, mm. you spent a night crossing if you've come from Europe. Um, and yet at the end of it is this fabled city, which is, you know, so rich in history and, and diversity and, and so beloved by travelers. You know, Mark, you wrote about how it was bittersweet for you to live through and work through the retirement of the 747. And you noted how that airplane was two times as long, the airplane itself, as the Wright brothers' first flight. And that was just a little more than 100 years ago. Uh, you know, in, in the roughly 100 years since that first Wright brothers' flight, we've come so far in aviation. Do you ever think much about where the next 100 years will take us in aviation? And let's just close our discussion with your prediction on what we might look forward to in the future when it comes to this uh, marvel that we have of, of, uh, of flight. 
Oh, that's a wonderful question and a great way to finish. Uh, you know, the 787 that I fly now is smaller than the 747. It may not be quite as iconic, but maybe the most important answer to your question is, you know, related to sustainability. Uh, you know, we all want travel to be sustainable and, you know, in tune with our environmental uh, hopes. And, you know, the 787 is a much more efficient plane than the 747, mm-hmm. you know, massively more more efficient. And that, that feels good. I, I'm, I'm proud to fly it. And I, I know that a lot of really smart people are working on ensuring that aviation and travel in general mm-hmm. are are sustainable. And that will mean the world to those of us who love it and to those of us who come after us. Yeah, because yeah, the sensibility now, given the existing technology, is if you can take a train instead of flying, that's better for the planet. Uh, hopefully the day will come when airplanes will fly in a green way, just like other modes of transportation are working on. And I think that's a realistic hope. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark Van Honecker. The book is Imagine a City, A Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World. Best wishes in your flying and your traveling. Thank you, Rick. Same to you. Those faraway places With a strange sound and names Next, we'll get an update on travel to Cuba and the rules we Americans have to observe to keep it legal. And in a bit, listeners share how it's been going for them in a very busy year for international travel. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Many of the most rewarding travels I've had over the years have been when I've ventured to countries that my government didn't get along with and sometimes didn't even want me to go to. Iran, Russia, Palestine, and Cuba. Well, I wouldn't visit either Iran or Russia right now. I think travel to Palestine and to Cuba can be very worthwhile. For a look at getting to Cuba, we're joined now by Christopher P. Baker. Chris grew up in Yorkshire, got a master's in Latin American studies in Liverpool, and has been exploring Cuba for the last 30 years. He's the author of the National Geographic Traveler Guidebook to Cuba and formerly wrote The Moon Guides to Cuba and Havana. His photographic books about Cuba include Mi Moto Fidel, Motorcycling Through Castro's Cuba. Chris joins us now from his home in Southern California. Rick, it's a delight to be back with you. You know, I've talked to so many people over the years who've hurdled the barriers that the United States government puts up between us and traveling to Cuba. They've gone there, and they've not only had good trips, but they've had uniquely inspiring experiences and some of the best travels of their lives. That was certainly my experience. And, of course, there is that issue of the, our government and uh, our fear of communism and the legality of it all in visas. But first of all, what is it about Cuba that Americans are so romanced by? It's just amazing to me. People don't talk about other countries that way, but when you talk about Cuba, people just get all, you know, dewy-eyed and nostalgic. Well, on one level, of course, there's this uh, forbidden fruit aspect, but um, that is only a small portion of it. I think when people go to Cuba, having heard a lot of negatives over the decades about communist regimes and whatnot, they discover that Cuba is really an exciting place. It's full of passions, music, dance, arts that are, you know, the level of culture in Cuba is astonishing, and Cubans love Americans. There is, of course, this time warp element. This is, um, you know, 1950s 
redux. Uh, the old yeah. American cars going down the street, there's nowhere quite like it. But I think the welcome reception that Cubans give Americans is really the biggest surprise of all. And I think one interesting point is Americans think nobody can go there, but it's just our government. I mean, isn't Cuba a major destination for Canadians and Germans in the Caribbean? Sure. They've been very badly hit by um, COVID and the tourism hasn't recovered, but they were getting more than 4 million tourists a year mm-hmm. before COVID. And of course, the majority of those were Canadians, uh, Europeans, but a considerable number of Americans too. You know, you've, you've written several different guidebooks on Cuba, and I would imagine a lot of your guidebook sales are from outside of the United States. For sure. That's um, the most important book I'm working on these days. It's now in fourth edition, I think, is my National Geographic Traveler Guidebook. Of course, that's published in French, Italian, a number of languages. And I constantly run into people in Havana and the rest of Cuba carrying those guidebooks. So why is our government so hell-bent on making a visit complicated? <laughs> well, we've got, what, six decades of, uh, you know, a Cuban-American uh, community in Miami that is, for the most part, determined to keep that embargo in place. Uh, if it weren't for them, I think we would have seen the back end of the embargo a long time ago. Okay, so that's kind of fascinating to me because it seems like old news, but it does go all the way back to when Castro took over. The dictator before was friendly to American business and government. Batista, he left the country. All of his cronies left the country. A lot of his elites had the wherewithal to leave the country because they didn't want to live in a communist nightmare, and they settled in Florida. So really, the basis of that goes way back to the 1950s, doesn't it, when the elites of Cuba fled the country and uh, Castro and his gang took over. Sure. And of course, you know, in those uh, early years after the revolution, there was uh, there were a lot of people dispossessed, people lost businesses and whatnot. So there's a lot of bitterness in Miami amongst a good percentage of that population. And now they've risen to political power in not just Florida, but Washington, and they shape Washington's policy towards Cuba for electoral reasons. It's a, It's that simple. Okay, let's get now into the nitty-gritty of an American wanting to go to Cuba. They've heard people like you rave about it. Their friend's friend went there and had a time of his life. How do we go? Is it is it easy? Is it complicated? Can you do it legally, or do you have to sneak in? You used to have to sneak in, but now you can do it legally, uh, thanks to Obama. Trump tightened the noose considerably, but one thing he did not do was shut the door totally on legal travel for every U.S. citizen. So there is one license category called support for the Cuban people. Anybody can travel under that license. The good news is you don't have to ride away to the Treasury Department to request it. It is a pre-approval. If you believe you're going to go to Cuba and support the Cuban people, then you can just book an airline ticket and go to Cuba. So when I went, I remember we had there was different categories that you had to make an excuse for your visit. And as long as you chose one that made sense and you stuck with your story, you could do it. Yeah, and that, that's what it is. You have to go for support for the Cuban people. And what does that mean? It means you literally you can't, under U.S. law since Trump, stay in a hotel. So you use a private B&B. And the, the private B&B scene has evolved remarkably. Rick, I know you've been to Cuba. What was it, a decade ago? But these days, the level of quality of B&Bs has risen to the level of boutique hotels. My, all of my accommodations were short-term rentals, you know, Airbnb-type yeah, options, yeah. and they were all great. Yeah, and these days, many of them are 10, 12, 15 rooms, superb places. But this is what support for the Cuban people is all about. You're supposed to stay in these B&Bs, hmm. use private restaurants, 
and in inverted commas, support the growth of an independent society. Oh, I see. So we are contributing to their capitalistic infrastructure by going and patronizing these small businesses. Right. And the end goal from Washington's perspective is that this takes on a political dimension and presumably fosters demands for political reform. Well, that's great. So now, are there any dangers from our government or from theirs that we should be mindful of if we're going to make this dream of going to Cuba come true? Well, certainly from the U.S. government's perspective, they're really not policing it on an individual travel level. You don't want to be staying at hotels, as I said, and then posting up on Facebook how you've been uh, lazing right. on a beach at such and such a, a government-owned hotel. That will potentially get you into trouble. Because I was coming back in through uh, Houston, I guess, or Dallas or wherever. I was changing my plane, and I had my Cuban cigars I just showed him to the customs guy. I said, don't you care about this? I'm coming back from Cuba and I've got Cuban cigars. And he just says, get out of here. Come well, on, here's the bad news, Rick. Since Trump, there's a ban once more on Cuban cigars and rum. You may not come back to the States. Oh, but, so you got to smoke them down so there. you got to smoke them and drink as much as you want down there. Christopher P. Baker is updating us on American travel to Cuba right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's a travel writer, photographer, tour leader, and cruise lecturer. The American Society of Travel Writers named him Travel Writer of the Year. Chris currently authors the National Geographic Traveler Guidebook to Cuba, as well as other titles on Costa Rica, Colombia, Panama, and the Dominican Republic. Chris also recommends day trip itineraries in his book, Perfect Day California. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, we're talking about the difficulties and the challenges of Americans getting in, and, and right now it seems like it's wide open. Uh, you run tours I've always thought I'd love to do tours to places that are a little more complicated, but I don't know if I could even sleep knowing I had a, a tour coming up and I didn't know what these random government changes in policy would be. What kind of frustrations do you have when it comes to meeting a group that signed up for one of your tours in Havana and ready to take them? Is it, is it smooth? Well, really, none these days. Most of what I'm doing right now are photography tours. And of course, as you know, I've always been leading motorcycle tours, maybe once a year. But the photo tours are small groups, uh, seven people maximum for us in Cuba. We say to people, go in and advance a few days because anybody can choose to go in freely under the support for the Cuban people at any time they want. Take a little more time in Havana if you want, and then I arrive and uh, we begin the tour, and um, it's all arranged for everybody. Uh, the venues that we're going to go to, all the transport, uh, all the headache of arranging anything is already uh, taken care of. You know, when I'm thinking about Cuba, and I'm always thinking about us getting in, but also I'm curious about Cubans getting out. The American, if they talk to a, a Cuban in Florida, they might think that Cubans wish they could get out of that place. Uh, what is the general feeling uh, among Cubans who live in Cuba? Is there a desire for people to leave? Are they free to leave? Uh, can they go traveling as tourists? Uh, well, you, you've touched on almost a sore point because um, since 2013, when Raul Castro was president, they lifted all travel restrictions for Cubans. Every Cuban can get a passport. Uh, many of my Cuban friends with money started traveling abroad just on vacations at that point. But... With the collapse of tourism and the effect, in fact, of the whole economy, really, with COVID, the economic situation in Cuba is so desperate these days, it really is bad, mm. that Cubans are leaving. Um, they're looking for economic opportunity abroad. And because mm -hmm. there is no longer a restriction for Cubans to leave Cuba, the exodus last year alone was more than 1.5% of the entire population wow. left Cuba last year. 
Would you say it's kind of a brain drain with well-educated people well, who could find employment? So that's double bad for the uh, society. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's one positive thing going on in Cuba, though, is that youthful people with access to money, and it's amazing where a lot of this money is coming from. It's not just family remittances, for example, from abroad, but a lot of uh, younger people who are now becoming influencers in Instagram, etc., and believe it or not, with you a know, quarter of a million following and actually earning money, they are investing their money. And so a lot of younger people nice. are putting their money into restaurants and bars and other enterprises that mm -hmm. are permitted in Cuba at an international par in terms of quality. You know, Christopher, you just mentioned remittances. And I don't think a lot of Americans realize the importance of remittances. That means, the way I understand it, when somebody from a very poor country goes to a wealthy country and does the, the gardening and the, the kind of work that immigrants typically do when they visit a, a country north of the border, they work really hard, they live frugally, and they, they are ethically obligated, really, to send money back to their loved ones who are stuck in that bad economy. Uh, in some countries in Latin America, 25% of the GDP is from remittances from the United States. When we pay for somebody from south of the border to do work for us, a lot of that money is supporting people back home, and it helps them make ends meet back home without having to go north. Correct. And Cuba, before COVID, was getting about $4 billion a year from remittances, from well, mostly from the USA. Before Trump, I should say, because Trump banned it. Yeah. So that was a body blow to Cuba. You know, I I don't see you don't see Western Union offices on every street corner in where we live, but that is a big deal south of the border because that's where mom yep. goes to get yep. her money every month from her son. And believe it or not, in Cuba, Western Union were everywhere. Then Trump put a ban on um, these wire remittances, and Biden has kept in place a lot of Trump's restrictions on travel and trading with Cuba. But he did lift that restriction on remittances, and Western Union, just last month, returned to Cuba. Wow. We're updating our notes to travel to Cuba right now with Christopher P. Baker. Chris writes the National Geographic Traveler Guidebook to Cuba. He leads photography and motorcycle tours around Cuba. And you'll find links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Christopher, what is the reality of today's brand of communism in Cuba? Is it just a sham that's actually capitalistic now? Or is it still doggedly hanging on to that, that sort of ideal of uh, people's revolution and well, equitable society? It's a mixed plate. Uh, formerly, the Cuban government is clinging to its revolutionary zeal. The Cuban economy is messed up. The Cubans, communists, would have done a good job of messing up the economy without the U.S. embargo. But the trouble is that um, there is still an embargo in place that has been devastating. Mm -hmm. The whole uh, embargo has always been intended to stop the rest of the world trading with Cuba. So you have this problem of a domestic economy that is really dysfunctional at the very best, I can say. But there is this um, these portals that have been opened by the state to permit private enterprise. And in fact, last year, private businesses as corporations were permitted for the first time with mm. up to 100 employees, and people are taking advantage of it. Most of the um, private enterprise at this stage is much smaller scale than that, but the potentials do exist. So there's a um evolution going on, a slow evolution towards capitalism, it sounds like, but on the terms of the Cuban government. 
Yeah, I mean, it's three steps forward, two back. Yeah. It's nowhere near at the pace that we saw in China and Vietnam, etc. You know, I, I used to kind of marvel at how so many people were, were just determined to see the Cuban economy as a mess and then forgive the Honduran economy. But when you look at the... They're both at the same latitude, basically. One is um, capitalism gone wild, and the other one is communism. And if you looked at it, they're both about the same... But in uh, Cuba, you'd have less crime and uh, a little more equity. And in Honduras, you'd have more crime and a bigger gap between poor people and rich people. But overall, the GDP was about the same. Cuba is saddled with the American um, embargo that makes their tough life even tougher. And Honduras is saddled with a lot of uh, gang problems and uh, corruption in their world. How would you compare the realities of a miserable capitalistic situation in a country like Honduras and a miserable communist situation in a country like Cuba? Well, I, as a journalist, uh, try to see uh, the good and bad kind of in equal measure. I need to find where the balance lies. And it is easy to be entirely negative about the revolution and the communist system. I am not going to do that. I have seen so much good that has come from that revolution, especially in terms of Healthcare, which is right now under extreme stress in Cuba. Education levels, fantastic. I mean, it's the first country in the Western Hemisphere, the only one, to eradicate illiteracy entirely. Did that at an early stage. So, uh, And, of course, they did tremendous things in resolving as much as possible the uh, racial problems that a lot of uh, people in Miami refuse to acknowledge. They just don't acknowledge it. Right. So it's an interesting opportunity to travel down there. And when we do travel to Cuba, it's an educational experience any way you cut it. It's it's such an eye-opener, I think. Sure. And I think for most people that I've ever taken there, it's, I've done more than 100, well over 100 tours that I've taken. Um, it's a 98% I love this place reaction. Uh, it, it really bowls people over in the very many ways that it surprises them and in which they uh, it endears itself to them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker. He writes the National Geographic Traveler Guidebook to Cuba. Chris's website is ChristopherPBaker.com. Chris, over the years, you've led countless Americans around Cuba, either on your photography tours or on their motorcycles. What's the most gratifying thing for you as a person who cares about Cuba and who cares about the American um, global perspective? It's... um Undoubtedly, when Americans come to understand that Cuba has so many positives, the Cuban people don't represent the governmental system as such, and they say to me, my God, this was the most rewarding trip I've ever taken. You know, you hit on something that was my takeaway from Cuba, and it was there's no animosity, there's no anger, there's no edge to the Cuban people. When I was traveling in Cuba, I splurged for a local guide. I hired a guide, I think it was... $100 a day I paid for a local guide, which is a crazy amount of money for a Cuban. And we had our friend and our sidekick for four days in a row. It was wonderful for the four of us. And everywhere we went, we met Cubans who were joyful, Cubans who could have a party just by opening a bottle of rum and passing it around. It was New Year's Eve. We we knew we had the fallback (laughs) of going to a fancy hotel's rooftop. But I told my family, I bet if we walk through a neighborhood, we'll get invited into a party. And we were. And it was the greatest party. And they said, what do you want to drink? And I said, a beer. And they said, all we have is rum. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. It was, the, it was probably the, the happiest New Year's Eve I can remember. And I was so thankful to have done that with my family. 
And I was so thankful to be able to take that home as my favorite souvenir. Christopher P. Baker, thanks for all the work you do with introducing Americans to Cuba and uh, best wishes as, uh, as these two countries learn to live together. Thank you so much, Rick. Son tres palabras, solamente mis angustias, y esas palabras son, como me gustas. Up next, it's part two with our Travel with Rick Steves listeners about what it's been like to get back to traveling again. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. It's been an extra busy year for travelers, especially people trying to redo the plans they had to postpone during the pandemic shutdowns. On last week's show, some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners told us how it's been going for them getting back to traveling again. Let's finish out today's edition of the show by checking in at 877-333-7425. How easy has it been for you to resurrect your travel plans? James is on the line from Beaverton in Oregon. Hey, James. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for calling. What are your uh, travel experiences lately? Um, well, the one we had most recently was we had kind of an amazing trip this last January. Mm-hmm. Um, we had initially scheduled it for way back in 2020, and then, uh, you know, things happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. it got pushed back to 2021 and then pushed back again and pushed back again. And finally, we were able to take it this last January. I think, um, you know, this I think one 2020, was a trip down to Antarctica. 2023 is the year for everybody to re- resurrect those travel plans that were scuttled <laughs> in 2020. So good for you. It you really went to is. South America and Antarctica. We did. We did. Uh, we wanted to make sure that if we were to take a big trip like we did down to Antarctica, that we kind of stayed down there for as long as we could so that mm-hmm. we didn't take those big, long uh, jet plane trips that take a lot of carbon. We wanted to do those and get down to South America and stay down there for a while. So that let's just pause here for a sec, James, because that is a very thoughtful thing. I mean, rather than taking two trips, especially if they're long trips, you can cut your emissions, your carbon cost of your travels, by 50% by putting those trips together. That's your thinking, right? Exactly. Good. Okay. So So we ended up going to Antarctica. We uh, took a cruise down to the Antarctic Peninsula out of Argentina. Hmm. And we had this wonderful lineup of many countries kind of back to back to back. And then uh, even after having rescheduled so many times and so many times, right before we were going to go on our trip, my daughter got COVID. Oh, no. And it was the first time she'd gotten COVID, too. Oh, Um, Jeez. And then a day or two after that, my wife got it from her. It was the best gift we got from school. Hmm. So the, the hard part there is that the cruise line has a policy where you cannot test COVID at all for the two weeks prior to embarking on the ship. Wow. So the second those tests went positive, it didn't matter whether or not they were healthy enough a week later. Now we had to reschedule no matter what. Two weeks so, after testing positive, that's a long time. Yeah, it is. It is. Hmm. So we called the cruise line. We were able to get on one more, like the very, very last one that we could possibly get onto, mm-hmm. but a little bit later. And then after that, we were on this big scramble. We had to redo all the plane flights, redo mm-hmm. all the hotels, um, everything that we planned for that two weeks that we thought we were going to have. Now we didn't have it. Mm. And how did that work? That's a lot of rescheduling when you might have uh, things closed up because they were just booked. Yeah, a lot of those things uh, that we really wanted to do were just not available anymore. Um, luckily, a few of the, t- uh, the tour guides around, especially in South America, they did have a lot of openings, thankfully. Uh-huh. 
So you, you did finally get down to Antarctica then? We did, we did. And what was that like? I, I just find that fascinating. I, I got to admit, I don't quite know how that can be worth traveling so far, but everybody who goes there loves it. It was extraordinary. One of the things that we did um, was because we knew it was going to be one of those really, really big trips that we'd only get to take once, we took as many people as we could, too. So my wife and I went, our two daughters went, and also my mother and my wife's mother went. So it was a multi-generational trip. And the nice thing about these ships is that there's something to do for everybody that was on our, our activity levels. So my mom has a little bit harder time going around, but she's an extremely adventurous person. So mm-hmm. she was able to go on many of the excursions, walk around, wave at a lot of the penguins. Um, my older daughter is much more on the adventurous side. So she got to do things like a lot of uh, snowshoeing, a polar plunge where you get to jump in and get yourself in the uh, minus one degree uh, water. Whoa. Um, my younger daughter is very much uh, obsessed with birds. And so she, uh, the cruise ship we were on had two ornithologists, and she was able to just talk a blue streak with them and keep them excited as much as they were keeping her excited. What a, what a great family experience, if you can afford it, to have three generations together, and especially on a cruise. One thing I like about cruising is uh, the family can be together, and as you mentioned, everybody can do it at their own pace, and you all get together for dinner. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So now you had that one horrible experience with COVID, not that you were feeling terrible, but that just it just messed up all of your carefully laid plans. You must have been really careful to isolate yourself before the, the second time around. You had all these yeah, people. But, Did you tell them, don't go out to any sports bars, you know, don't uh, just stay outside? Oh, we, we went a little bit further. Uh, so even in our own house, all four of us, my wife and I and our daughters, we completely separated into different corners and didn't even see each other for about a week and a half. Really? And we had people delivering things to us. Yeah, we were taking it very seriously. Wow. Well, you made it, and apparently it was worth the trouble. It was absolutely worth the trouble. Uh, but we had to go through that level of, of care just because I don't think that the cruise ship was going to let us reschedule a second time. Okay. Um, once we did it this one time, if, if the cruise company canceled, they have no problem moving it. But because we had to do the cancellation right. because of COVID, they let us do it the one time. If we did it again, it would have to go through insurance. So if I could ask you, because this is a big investment, um, when all the dust settled, what was the cost of having to reschedule? Did you find most of the people you gave money to were thankful you were just going to do what you intended to do and you do it later? Or did a lot of people just keep your money because they could? I say that not anybody wanted to just keep the money. Um, even the, the local tour guides that we were working with, they were all very, very happy to reschedule as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of them that, like we, we initially as part of the trip, were going to spend about three days in Paraguay Unfortunately, losing two weeks out of the trip due to COVID, we couldn't do that anymore. That was one of the things that we had to cut. Mm -hmm. So we ended up, just because it was Christmas and because we know that Paraguay is not having the best time right now, we we ended up just letting the tour guide keep the money. But we didn't have to. They all were incredibly generous. I don't think a single one said we couldn't change. Now, when you say Paraguay is not having the best time right now, I'm reading that into thinking they've got... Uh, instability, and it's not quite as safe on the streets as you'd like it. What was the general take with your family, you know, your your parents and your kids, of going to places uh, down in South America on, on these in these big cities and Buenos Aires and so on? 
Most of the time that we were kind of out and going about, we had a local tour guide with us. Um, there were a few places that we kind of just walked out on our own and walked around the town. Buenos Aires in, in particular, it, it felt a little bit like walking through downtown Manhattan, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the feeling was this at some point was uh, you know, maybe a little dangerous, but right now it, it, it seemed completely safe. Mm-hmm. Um, good. Paraguay was the only one we had a little bit of concern about and that we had a little bit of travel warning about mm-hmm. going into, but we didn't end up getting to experience that one because of the cut. You know, I would I would imagine just the cost of having a local guide is, as you mentioned, you're helping out a local hardworking person. Uh, the price is really pretty pretty reasonable for guides in Latin America, private guides, and it's just the best investment you can make. Absolutely. The the guides were exceptional, and then they, they'd also themselves hire other local people, and they mm-hmm. would hire local people, mm-hmm. and that that was always a wonderful thing. I'd say that the even better places we got the local guides tended to be the smaller areas. Yeah. So we went um, we went over to Montevideo, Uruguay, for a day. Montevideo is not a small town by any means, but it's much smaller than Buenos Aires for sure. Right. And the uh, the guide we had there was just exceptional and extremely flexible with all the, the changes we had to make at the uh, last minute. James, what a great experience for your family, and thank you so much for calling in and sharing your the inspirational story of the family vacation that had to wait several years, but finally happened. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Take care. Bye now. We're glad to hear from you, our listeners at Travel with Rick Steves, as we share tales from getting back out there again. 877-333-7425 is our number, and radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. Allison in Spokane emails us about her post-pandemic travels within the U.S. She writes... Lessons learned about checked luggage. We had booked two weeks to the big island of Hawaii over Christmas in 2022, but bad weather delayed flights and resulted in a three-night stay over in Seattle without luggage, which had gone on to Kona without us. Thankfully, we had travel insurance. I recommend keeping careful receipts of all lodging, food, clothing, and extras because the more details you have documented, the better chance you have to get a settlement. This year, we spent a week in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's been a bucket list trip for me as a big Georgia O'Keeffe fan. We thought the O'Keeffe studio and home tour in Abiquiu was one of the best of its kind we'd ever experienced. Allison, thanks for the thoughts. And yeah, you've got to remember that when you do fly somewhere, you may be stuck without your luggage. So it's important to have what you really need with you on the flight. And also, I think that's a very good idea. If you have flight insurance and you want to get reimbursed, you need to have records. Boy, talking about great stuff in Santa Fe, I think I've enjoyed browsing and shopping more in Santa Fe than almost any small town I can I can remember. Wonderful art galleries, uh, fun, crafty souvenirs, and great food. People love Santa Fe. Thanks, Allison, for your email, and happy travels. And Vanessa's calling us from Wilkesboro in North Carolina. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Rick. Nice to have you on the line. How has your travels well, been you. lately? They've been great. In fact, we just returned from a three-weeks trip through the fjords of Norway and also driving through Scotland. Wow, you connected Norway and Scotland. I, every yes, time we I'm did. In, every time I'm in the west of Norway, I just think, just across the water there, I mean, it's a long way, but it's Scotland. How did you connect Absolutely. the two? Well, to start out, this is our uh, revived trip we had scheduled for 2020, 
Uh-huh. And we brought it back to life and uh, changed a few things because we're three years older. We're both in our early 70s. So we just felt like some of the things we had planned three years ago, we just weren't quite up to it. But we kept uh, the major things. And um, what we decided to do was take your advice. We're not really cruise people, but the best way to see the fjords is with a cruise. Yeah. So and we also splurged to have a veranda so we wouldn't miss anything. Mm. Um, But after our seven days cruising of Norway, uh, when we returned to our port of Copenhagen, we took a flight from Copenhagen to Aberdeen, Scotland, where we rented a car, and then we drove to Inverness, Mm -hmm. to Fort Augustus, Mm -hmm. from there to the Isle of Skye, and Fort William for just a brief look because it was terribly overcrowded. Mm. And then to Sterling, and then the grand finale was St. Andrews, where my husband got to play golf. Oh, so, if you're a golfer, you've got to go to St. Andrews. And if you're not a golfer like me, you kind of wonder, what's the big deal? But boy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So this is interesting. You had quite a trip. And just like me, you were reviving your plans from 2020 in 2023. And I, w- I went to Scandinavia because that's the, the flight I canceled when, when COVID hit, you know, back in 2020. I'm curious about your cruise. You took a cruise for seven days from Copenhagen, and um, it was mostly Norway. So you went north to Oslo yeah. and then around to Bergen and farther north? Well, we did not go to Bergen. Uh, the one we had planned in 2020 did go to Bergen. This one was a little different. It included Oslo, Christiansand, Eidford, and Flom. Huh. And, of course, the, the fjords. Okay, so when you went to Flom, right around the corner from Flom is a place, a, a fjord called the Narrow Fjord, I believe. Exactly. And that's where you can't believe how these rocky black cliffs are just just rocketing out of the inky sea. I know. It was unbelievable. It was sort of like they saved the best for last on our oh, I just, it's breathtaking, whether you're on a ferry or if you're on a little inflatable Zodiac on a little day trip uh, from these guys in uh, in <laughs> you Flum. You feel so small. <laughs> oh, you so do. Tiny. And they park right there. They, I love just yeah. turn off the motor and just float at the base of that yeah. cliff. It's amazing how they park these huge cruise yeah. ships. And then you crane your neck to look up at this cliff, and I don't know, it must be a thousand feet straight up. And then you realize, okay, if you take the trajectory of that rock cliff going straight down, it goes just as far underwater. Into the water, exactly. Yeah. It's it, amazing. It is mind That's why we didn't want to miss anything. <laughs> oh, and you had good weather, I hope? The weather was cool, but we came prepared. We wore layers. and Good for you. you. Know, the, the, yeah. yeah, the weather could change on a dime, you know, in both Scotland yeah. and Norway. It was the same. I remember as a kid, speaking of weather, staying at the hostel in Flam, the, the northernmost part of your cruise. And it's the first time I think I was ever poetic in my young life. I must have been <laughs> 20 years old. And I was sitting on the, the porch of this youth hostel with some friends from Australia. And we were just sitting there enjoying a beer, watching the weather blow in. And it was bad weather, but it just was so dramatic and beautiful mm-hmm. in its own way to be there in yeah. the majesty of Norwegian fjord country and appreciating the, the bad weather, frankly. I know. And even with the bad weather, uh, it, it didn't disappoint. You no. know, it still was, uh, it was great. And then you went over to Scotland and you went up to Skye. And you mentioned um, Fort William, I think, was crowded. But 
I've always thought Sky has too much tourism for the infrastructure there. How did you manage in the famous and very popular these days island of Skye yeah. in the yeah, north of Yeah, it, it was a bit crowded, but not terrible. Um, traffic did slow. Mm-hmm. There were just way too many um, RV campers. I guess they call them caravans. Yeah. Uh, way too big, and I think most of them were rentals. In fact, our host at the B&B said a lot of these people rent them and have never driven them. And it became obvious on some of the ah. one-track roads we would all have to back up. You know, you know, <laughs> or, I bet those people were unable, in a lot of cases, were unable to get accommodations because we can't find accommodations in a lot of cases for our tour groups when we're going to Scotland and Skye. Right. It's just very, very tough. Right. And it's a beautiful well, island. It is. We started six months ago mm-hmm. booking over six months ago. Yeah. And the places we had booked three years ago were either already filled or they were not in operation anymore. Yeah. There's a lot so, of change in that part of yes. the world from COVID. So, And prices have gone up after a couple of years of COVID. Um, yeah. But one thing I, I found when I was in Norway, and you were just in Norway, the exchange rate is amazing, 10 crowns in a dollar. So for the first time in my memory, Norway did not seem that expensive. Right. And um, we did bring cash, but we really didn't need it Every everywhere, except for the um, the parking meters. A lot of those still required coins in Scotland. Yep. So we'd often have to go or beg for change from somebody, <laughs> you know. And every everyone was so accommodating. Tourists helped yeah. tourists, and locals helped the tourists. And, you know, so we made it just fine. With you what sound we like had. a great traveler. And it's a delight to talk to you. Thank you for reporting in on your trip through Norway and Scotland. And I'm glad you well, finally got you. to make it happen after the pandemic. Well, we are, too. We're very happy we did this. I still have a little jet lag, but, you know, it's part of the fun. Wow, we got your report while you still have jet lag. I'm (laughs) I'm very pleased with that. Well, best wishes, and I hope we can talk again sometime. I just have one comment. Yep. Um, We would sometimes turn on the the news in the mornings of the local networks, and, you know, I told my husband, I said, have you heard one time anything about gun violence? Mm-hmm. And yes, there were crimes, mm-hmm. but not once did we hear that. And I'm just making that as an observation. You know, I as was a comment. I was in uh, from from Norway when you were in Norway. I went over to Stockholm, and on the main pedestrian street, they've got a famous statue, and it's a giant pistol that's got the barrel of it tied into a knot, so no bullet mm-hmm. can go out of it. And uh, oh wow! And uh, the Scandinavians uh, really figure. You don't need to have as much violence in your world, and I think we can be inspired by that. So We can, for yes. sure. Best wishes, Vanessa, and thanks again for calling. Well, thank you, mm-hmm. and keep on traveling. Keep on traveling, all right. Come, let us build a way for all mankind A way to leave these evil years behind To travel onward to a better year Where love is And there will be no fear Where love is And no fear Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tappan, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Website uploads are managed by Andrew Wakeling. Jerry Frank wrote and performed our theme music. 
You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.